Good morning. I'm Jonathan White, and today's scripture reading comes from Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6 from the ESV. A call to return to the Lord. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. The word of the Lord. Good morning. For any guests who are with us, I'm... Mike Stroh, one of the pastors here, I want to add my word of welcome to you. So glad you've joined us in worship, and thank you, Jonathan, for reading our passage this morning. Thank you, worship team, for stirring us up, reminding us of the joy that we share as God's people in worship. As the famous novelist Louis L'Amour said, few of us ever live in the present. We're forever anticipating what is to come or remembering what has gone. Chances are you can relate to that. I know I do. Many of us struggle with the past. We get hung up on regrets and failures, and so we don't find freedom in the present. Or we worry so much about the future and all of its unknowns that we can become paralyzed to inaction here and now. So Lamore is right. We have to live in the present, and we have to live in the present as believers, but as Christians... This doesn't mean completely forgetting the past, completely ignoring the future, but actually being rightly oriented to both. As Christians, we're empowered to live in the present as we consider the past and the future in light of Christ. We look back and we see the work of Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection for us. We look forward and we see Christ returning in glory to make all things new, to set up his eternal kingdom. That's our past. That's our future. And so when we are rightly oriented in time, as we see Christ in both directions, we are freed. We are empowered to serve him and to live rightly in the present. We find hope. We find purpose to live today. We'll see that this morning in the book of Zechariah. So if you have a Bible uh, with you, you can turn there or on your device. But we continue our series through the minor prophets that we've called Live Justly, Love Mercy. Now nearing the end, which is uh, amazing to me, we're already nearing the end of this series with just two books left. Last week, after the service, Bob Kerstetter reminded me why we're studying minor prophets, and maybe you find this helpful. We study the minor prophets because in heaven, when Haggai comes up to you and he says, how'd you like my book, right? You can have something to say. You don't have to uh, kind of try to avoid him for all eternity, okay? 
So if you missed last week's sermon on Haggai uh, from Pastor Mike Traven, make sure to go back and listen to that. It's the best sermon on Haggai you've ever heard. (laughs) Hopefully you've taken a bit more from our series than that, but if nothing else, you now have something to say to Haggai. But the last few weeks, we have been seeing a few of those lesser-known minor prophets like Haggai. We turn this morning to Zechariah. You may be a bit more familiar with him, with this book. But Haggai and Zechariah worked together. God called them both to minister to those Jews that were coming back to Jerusalem uh, after their captivity in Babylon. They're discouraged. We saw last week they're complacent. They're prioritizing the rebuilding of their own houses over the house of the Lord, over the temple. And so Zechariah gives us, he prophesies these series of visions and dreams that really culminate in several amazing glimpses of the coming Messiah and his kingdom. These words had a big impact on the people to get to work in the present in light of their future hope. They could have easily gotten sidetracked by their past failures. Remember, they're discouraged. They're seeing the rubble and the ruins of what once was. They could have easily been sidetracked. Or they could have been caught up in the worry of what is to come. How do we know someone's not just going to come and knock down this temple too? The same is true for us. We need Zechariah's words too. Though some of his prophecies are now fulfilled, His visions of the coming Messiah still give us perspective. They still give us hope to get busy now, today, living in the present for Jesus Christ and his kingdom in light of his coming, his first coming and his return. So let's pray together as we turn to this book. Our Father, we give you praise. We thank you for the joy as we've sang this morning. Thank you for the joy of knowing you. The joy joy of being your people gathered here, that we now are your temple. The house of the Lord is your people. And so we're so grateful that you have promised to be with us. You are with us now as we worship. You are with us now as we turn to your word in complete dependence, with open hearts, ready to receive what you would have for us in the book of Zechariah. And so in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So look at Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 1 to set the scene. Zechariah 1 verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying... Stop right there for just a minute. We're given the time frame here as we are in most of these minor prophet books. The first verse really sets up the context. So remember, like Haggai, we saw last week, Zechariah was a post-exilic prophet. That just means he's a prophet ministering after the exile. Remember, the Jews are returning from Babylon. His name means Yahweh remembers. And how appropriate that is for this season in the life of God's people. God remembering his promise made through the prophet Jeremiah to deliver them after 70 years of captivity. Zechariah was born into a priestly family, so much like Jeremiah and Ezekiel before him, he was both a priest and a prophet. He was born in Babylon and then came back to Jerusalem with about 50,000 exiles. And God called him to minister to this group of people who were, again, discouraged. They were facing this difficult task of rebuilding, but he didn't have to do it alone. God raised up 
uh, Haggai to do it with him. Ezra chapter 5 tells us that Haggai and Zechariah both prophesied together uh, to this group of Jews and encouraged them to do the work of rebuilding. So in some way, they seem to tag team with very different styles, uh, but a complementary message. They tag team this work. So this book is aimed at these people who struggled with both spiritual complacency, they struggled with fear of the future, and maybe some of us can relate to those feelings as well this morning. And to reach this people, Zechariah's approach was very uh, ambitious, to say the least. To inspire them to action in the present, yes, he did speak directly to their situation, the need to start building right now in the present, but he also fast-forwards way in the future to give them glimpses of the coming Messiah. So this book contains several dreams and visions. It's apocalyptic, much like Daniel and Revelation. So It's got a lot of strange dreams and symbols and imagery. It can be a challenge to really put all the pieces together. So it's important to keep the main purpose in mind, the main message as we go through, why he's delivering this to these people. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, the people had returned. They had come back physically to Jerusalem, but they had not yet fully in their hearts come back to the Lord. And that's God's desire for his people, to return to him with all our heart. And that's his desire for us as well today. And that explains their complacency that we saw last week in the book of Haggai. And so God wants all of our hearts. If we zoom out and kind of see Zechariah from 30,000 feet, chapters 1 through 8 are focused primarily on the here and now, right? Building the temple, the rebuilding, the work that they had before them. While chapters 9 through 14 look way ahead across the centuries to the coming kingdom, the Messiah. And these are actually very connected things. With a view toward the coming Messiah, that gave them the perspective that they needed to work in the present. That gave them the motivation to start rebuilding the temple in their day. Zechariah is by far the most messianic of all the minor prophets. He talks the most of the coming Messiah. And that's why the New Testament writers quote or allude directly to Zechariah's words more than 40 times to show how Jesus Christ definitively fulfilled many of these prophecies. And some were still waiting for Jesus to fulfill at his second coming. But Zechariah gives us several snapshots, several glimpses of Messiah. We'll look at just a couple of those this morning so we can be encouraged and anchored in the present like Zechariah was hoping to do to his original audience. So flip over several chapters now to chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9 Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So to his original audience, the prophet says, God's people have no reason to fear the future because he says, your king is coming. Your king is coming. He's righteous, which speaks of his character and his rule, which will finally bring perfect justice, as we've been seeing throughout this entire series. And having salvation, meaning deliverance, 
first we know spiritually, but ultimately in every sense of that word. And if this passage sounds familiar to you, it's because we look at it every year on Palm Sunday. The Gospels tell us that Jesus rode on a donkey into Jerusalem, publicly declaring himself to be the Messiah that Zechariah spoke of right here centuries before. Well, Matthew and John quote this prophecy directly. Kings in the ancient world during wartime would ride stallions, war horses. But in times of peace, to make a statement, they would ride donkeys. Jesus definitively fulfilled this verse. But look at verse 10. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So Messiah, Zechariah says, will put an end to war. He will finally bring true and lasting peace when he comes to rule. Now wait just a minute. Jesus fulfilled verse 9 in the triumphal entry. Has verse 10 been fulfilled yet? Do we have true and lasting peace worldwide? Not quite. But see, even Jesus' disciples expected both to be fulfilled at the same time. Boy, the triumphal entry means verse 10 is coming too, right? That's what they thought. Shockingly, though, the nation rejected their king, put him to death, seemingly putting an end to their hopes. Well, maybe he's not the Messiah after all. Seemingly putting an end to God's plan until, of course, the resurrection. As the New Testament unfolds, we see verse 10 has yet to be fulfilled when Jesus comes again. Now, this gives us an important picture of how many of the prophets look forward to Jesus Christ, to the Messiah Zechariah puts both comings of Christ in one picture. It's often illustrated like if you were to look out in the distance and see two mountain peaks. Maybe they look very close together. Maybe one's even a little bit behind the other one. But as you approach and get closer, you see there's a massive valley between. And that's sort of what's happening in many of the prophets as they look forward. Often we see the first and second coming of Christ sandwiched right together. Uh, in a prophecy, sort of like you see here uh, in verses 9 and 10. Now, the valley between these two comings is 2,000 years and counting. We're in that valley right now, the present age, where God is working through the church as we await Christ's return. And so we find ourselves right now between verses 9 and 10. We're sort of resting on the period at the end of verse 9, waiting for verse 10 waiting for Jesus to bring that true peace that we so desperately need in our world. So the command, though, to rejoice applies just as much today to us as it did to them. We, too, are exiles in our present world. We, too, are citizens of another kingdom. And we get to be part of building that kingdom even now, even here in this present moment as we wait for that final day. Remember, those exiles are tempted to think, what does it matter if we get to work rebuilding? What if some other empire comes and knocks it down? We can lose hope when we take our eyes off Jesus and look only at our circumstances. We can lose hope when we take our eyes off Jesus and only look at the pain and the suffering and all the turmoil that's going on in our world right now. It's easy to do because there's so much of it. 
But Zechariah says the same thing to us as he did to his original audience. Hey, wake up. Your king is coming. So don't worry so much about all of that going on around you. Just pick up a brick and lay it on top of another. And then go get another brick and lay it on top of another. No matter what's happening around you, build now for the kingdom. Those exiles didn't know when, but they got busy because they were reminded that Messiah was coming one day. We don't know when Jesus will come again, but Zechariah tells us too: get busy for the kingdom in his strength, in his power. Flip over now to chapter 12 and verse 10. It's another vision of coming Messiah. And it's hard to only be able to focus on a couple of these. This book is so rich. I encourage you to read through it this week if you didn't get a chance this past week. But look at chapter 12 and verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. What's happening here? Well, quite a lot, actually. Remember, Zechariah is saying in the present day, hey, repent, come back to God, get to work. But here he speaks of some future day where a much deeper repentance will take place. Here he says God will pour out on his people the spirit of grace to recognize their sin. Specifically, the sin against this one that they have pierced. This mourning, this repentance will come when they look, look again at the verse, will come when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. God is clearly the one speaking here. And over the centuries, this verse has been quite the conundrum for the rabbis, for the scribes and scholars in Judaism. In fact, many Hebrew manuscripts show a change in the pronoun here, erasing on me. Because many scribes were so uncomfortable with this idea of God being the one somehow pierced, somehow connected so directly with Messiah who could even be put to death. But the oldest manuscripts, the best manuscripts that we have today preserve this shocking wording. While Jewish interpretation modern, in modern times obviously rejects the Christian interpretation fulfilled in Christ, the traditional rabbinic interpretation, all the ancient rabbis over and over and over wrote of this verse that it points to the coming Messiah being pierced, even put to death for the people. So you see the tension here seems to point to Messiah, but how could God be speaking of himself as Messiah being pierced? Well, we know the answer, don't we? John chapter 9, as the apostle records the death of Jesus on the cross, what does he say? He knew exactly what he was seeing. John writes, quoting Zechariah 12.10, he writes, The scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. Jesus Christ is the only way this scripture could be fulfilled. 
God himself taking on flesh, his own son becoming Messiah, his own son being pierced for our sin. So John the Apostle sees the death of Jesus fulfilling this prophecy. But does that mean it's completely fulfilled? What about the repentance that seems to come? We know the Jewish people as a whole have still not recognized Jesus as their Messiah, but the Bible says that is coming. So it's important to see that prophecy in Scripture can have various levels of fulfillment. Often there's an immediate fulfillment, something that captures the essence of what's being said, but not fully. And it still points us yet forward to how Jesus will ultimately fulfill it. And John knew that. Zechariah 12.10 was fulfilled as Jesus died on the cross, but partly. There's still a more complete fulfillment coming at his return. How do we know? John, the same author, the same apostle, quotes it again in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, speaking of the return of Christ. He says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. This day is coming. The complete fulfillment of Zechariah 12.10. And John says every eye will see him. Expanding it from just the Jewish people to everyone. All the tribes of the earth. Look back at Zechariah now chapter 13 and verse 1. Same context as we see in chapter 12. Chapter 13 and verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Look at, look at how unbelievable this is. God is revealing through Zechariah the people will be guilty of rejecting, even putting to death their own Messiah. And what's the result? A fountain opened for their cleansing? Not death, not judgment, but grace. The very piercing of Messiah is not the derailing of God's plan. But it was God's plan all along to open that fountain for cleansing. This is written centuries before Jesus came. And the prophet Isaiah captures the same scandalous idea in his own incredible vision of the suffering Messiah in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the gospel right here in the prophets. His wounds at the hands of sinners are the means of forgiveness for those same sinners. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you're here this morning, if you're joining us online, I invite you to wrestle with these claims. These ancient prophecies in Scripture that could only point to Jesus. 
This is the good news. No way to do anything about our own sin. So God put on flesh and took care of it himself. We've all sinned, as Isaiah says. We've all gone our own way. Instead of rejecting us for it, Jesus took our sin on himself. He was rejected so we could be accepted. We're all responsible for the piercing of Jesus because of our sin. But God's response to that is to offer forgiveness, to open this fountain of cleansing, of healing, of forgiveness. Zechariah said to the exiles, the Spirit says to you this morning, return to me. If you don't know Jesus Christ, that means putting your trust in him for your salvation. And as for believers, we need this word too, don't we? We tend to forget the gospel sometimes. As we struggle, we can easily believe lies of shame. We can easily feel like, you know, we've failed God one too many times. That his love for us might run out. Or that by our own effort, we need to somehow work our way back into his good graces. But we can't. Isn't that the whole point? By his wounds. By his wounds, we are healed. So we need to tell ourselves the truth again and again as we struggle, as we may cling to some sin. May God give us the grace to see it clearly, to repent, to turn to him and find forgiveness, to find mercy and grace. These are just two glimpses of Messiah in the book of Zechariah. And these words are meant to give perspective, to bring repentance to the complacent, to bring hope to the discouraged or fearful. And we need the same today. Just think about it. These words from a Jewish exile more than 2,500 years ago about events that are still future somewhat for us can help anchor us now, today. To get busy building for God's kingdom, not to be distracted by the world's corruption, the relentless bad news that we hear every day, but to learn to live today in light of the simple truth of Zechariah 14.9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth, period, full stop. Like Louis L'Amour said, few of us ever live in the present. We're anticipating what's to come or remembering what has gone. So think of your own life and your own heart. Do you tend to get bogged down in the past? Maybe dwelling on regrets, past mistakes? Or maybe you look back longingly to some sense of the good old days. If only we could go back there. But that traps us. That distracts us too from living for God today. And by the way, the good old days are not as good as you remember. Think of those Jewish exiles lamenting the rubble of the temple, thinking if we could only go back to those good old days with the glory of the temple like it was before. What does Zechariah say to them? The Lord was angry with your fathers. Those were not good days. You were steeped in idolatry. You were steeped in injustice. Remember, why you were exiled in the first place? Not good old days. Pick up a brick and get to work. We can make 
an idol out of the past. Zechariah says to us in no uncertain terms, repent, start building. And maybe you worry more about the future. Maybe that's your struggle. So much uncertainty in your personal life, so much uncertainty in our world right now, we can make an idol out of our control, our desire for control of the future, which, again, is another recipe for disaster because we have almost no control. But whether it's the past you struggle with most or the future you worry about most, either one keeps us from living fully for God right now. Because in Christ, we're free to see the past and the future rightly. We look back and see the blood of Jesus Christ covering our shame, covering our sin, covering our regrets. And we find new mercy to live for God today. We look ahead, we see Jesus coming in glory to make all things new. That should change how we live now. We can find a new dependence and gratitude in these moments. We can find freedom to hold on to the things of this world just a little bit more loosely. We can let go of minor offenses. We can forgive sins against us. We can face the challenges at our job, at our vocation, knowing God is with us. If we're working as an engineer or a homeschool mom, if you're navigating retirement, you're struggling just with the mundane, God is with you in all of it. We can face relational challenges. We can face the grief of loss, knowing even death isn't the final word here. And so we are equipped in Jesus Christ to face every day differently as members of God's kingdom as we draw on Jesus' provision. See, we as believers are placed uniquely in that valley between the two mountain peaks, aren't we? Between the first and second comings of Christ, and in both directions we look, gives meaning to right now. So Zechariah tells us to have joy as we pick up a brick and we put it on top of another, and then another, and another, to get busy building for the kingdom with the provision of Christ and the power of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the prophet Zechariah. These incredible prophecies you gave him that still so many centuries later point us to Jesus. They give us perspective and hope and courage. So help us to learn to live for you right now in the present. Help us to turn from sin, knowing you are ready always to forgive, to give us more grace. Would you free us from those worldly and improper views of the past and the future? Help us to see all time and this day, this moment, through the lens of the gospel, the sure hope of your kingdom, for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let us stand.